You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. It's a well-known verse, but chances are we, we, we've all heard Proverbs 26, 11 that says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. <laughs> How's that for a word picture before lunch? Uh, but you know, it's true, right? I mean, you know, when you think about it, it, it sometimes it can be so frustrating to watch people that we, we, we love and care about, you know, do the same thing over and over and over again. You know, watch people that we love, you know, go back to that same habit or go back to that same addiction or, 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 or go back to, the, to that same thing that was ruining their lives. Go back to that same abusive relationship or go back to this or back to that. Well, in a sense, that's what the Corinthians were doing. Uh, remember, uh, in earlier weeks, we saw that the, the Corinthians were a carnal church. We call them a carnal church because this was a church that was filled with division and divorce, uh, adultery and incest and prostitution and alcoholism. And, and, and so because of this, uh, the, the, this was a church that was, that was carnal. They were filled with carnality. And so even though they were saved, even though Jesus had changed their lives, even though they had been set free from their sinful way of life, nevertheless, they kept going back to their sinful past, to their sinful lifestyles. So the Apostle Paul this morning gives four examples from the children of Israel to show the Corinthians how to deal with their sinful past. So now as we go back to the first five verses, Paul now is is reciting the past. He's not reciting the Corinthians' past. He's reciting the past of the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. So in verse 1, he says again, For I I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased." for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, you know, when it comes to to being set free, but at the same time, you keep going back to your bondage, you keep going back to your slavery, well, really, there's there's not a better example than than the children of Israel. So that's why Paul is using them as the example. And, And so, first of all, Paul starts off with a contrast. And we know it's a contrast because of his use of the word all. In fact, he uses the word all five different times. He says, all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So five times he uses the word all, but then in contrast, he then says in verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So now here's the picture. If we go back to the book of Exodus, we'll see that there there were some two to maybe as many as three million Hebrews who who were slaves to Egypt. They were in slavery to Egypt, but then God set them free. God set all of them free, but God was not pleased with most of them. And we wonder why. Why wasn't God pleased with most of them? Here's the short answer. The short answer was because even though they had been set free from Egypt, they kept trying to go back to Egypt. Even though they were set free from their slavery, they were trying to go back to their slavery, and that's why God was not pleased. So now we break this down. He he says they were all under the cloud, uh, they, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses. Now, obviously, what he's, what he's referring to here is, is when Moses had parted the waters of the Red Sea and the people passed through those waters. And, and so he says, when, when they passed through their, the, those waters, it was as if they were baptized into Moses. Now, we know from earlier studies, the word baptize, it's, it's the Greek word baptizo, which can loosely be translated to identify with, to, to change your identity. 
So the idea is, is that ju- just as when a New Testament believer, just was in a, when, when a modern-day Christian uh, gets baptized today, they're showing that their new identity is in Christ, well, in the same way, what it's saying is that, is that the children of Israel, when they passed through those waters, the, the, the parting waters of the Red Sea, in, in a sense, they were baptized in Moses. They, they were now identified as Moses' people, the people of Moses. Now, by the way, you know, we, we talk about the parting of the Red Sea, and sometimes you have critics of the Bible who, who always try to explain away the miracles of the Bible. And so they try to explain away uh, you know, that the waters of the Red Sea were really parted. I say, well, you see, it was actually mistranslated. It's, it's not the, the Red Sea, it was the Sea of Reeds. And if it's the Sea of Reeds, well, we know in parts, in places, that's only 18 inches deep. And so because it's only 18 inches deep, they could have easily gone across it. They could have easily, easily just waded across because it was only 18 inches deep. Well, hey, listen, if that's true, I mean, if, if the entire Egyptian army was able to be drowned in 18 inches of water, that really was a miracle. And so he says they, they all went through the, the, the parted waters. They were baptized into Moses. And then he goes on to say, and they all ate the same spiritual food. Now here he's referring to, to the manna that fell from heaven, bread from heaven. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that, uh, that, that, that manna tasted like sweet wafers that were dipped in honey. In fact, I looked this up in the original language and in the Hebrew, it's pronounced crispo cremo. Uh, okay, might have, might have made that part up. It was just bread from heaven that God would provide for them. And, and, and then in addition to that, it says, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Now, of course, we, we know the story. In the book of Exodus, we read how, how on one occasion, the, 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 the people of Israel are grumbling and they're complaining that they're going to die of thirst. And so God tells Moses to, to take his staff and to strike a certain rock with his staff. And when he does, water will come out of it. So Moses obeys, he strikes the rock, and sure enough, water comes out. And, 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 and to this day, it's known as deep rock water. Uh, but, uh, but, but he provided water for the people. Now, with that, uh, you know, there's an old Jewish legend. Now, it's not a true, it's not true, it's just a wives' tale, an old Jewish legend that says, while the children of Israel were traveling and wandering through the desert, that rock that Moses struck with his staff kept following them everywhere they went. It'd be kind of creepy, right? Can you imagine that? I mean, you go from like one place to another, and, and, and there's that rock, and then you go to another place, and there's that rock again. You know, Aaron, Moses' brother, probably looks over his shoulder, and he's like, uh, Moses, don't look now, but... That creepy rock keeps following us. Well, Paul is, 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 is letting us know that, that, that it wasn't an actual rock. It's not a literal rock that he's talking about. He says, notice he says, they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, you know what? The, the, the one who kept providing for them while they were in the desert, whether it was providing food for them to eat or, or water for them to drink, the one who was providing for them in the desert wasn't a rock. No, it was the rock of their salvation. It was Jesus Christ himself, the second member of the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity. God was the one providing for them, not some rock. And so in a sense, he, he's kind of correcting this old fable, this old wives' tale. He's letting them know it wasn't a literal rock that was following them. It was Jesus, the rock of their salvation, that was providing for them. And so they, they all passed through the cloud. They, they all passed through the sea. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They, they ate the same spiritual food. But then in contrast, it says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, 
This is probably referring to the event recorded in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. This is the occasion where, where Moses sends, sends 12 spies to go and check out the promise land, to go and, you know, and check out the people. How, how, how strong are they? How mighty are they? Can we overcome these people? And, and, and you know, what about the food situation? You know, is this land really the land flowing with milk and honey like God promised it would be? So they send in 12 spies to check it out, and the 12 spies come back with a sample of the fruit from the land. It was a bunch of grapes. Listen, this bunch of grapes, this grape bunch was so big, it had to be carried on a pole between two men. I mean, these were some huge grapes. So the, so the 12 spies come back, but, but only 10 out of the 12 had, had, a good, had a negative report. 10 out of the 12 come back, and, and they're like, well, you know, we, we've, we've got a little bit of good news and a lot of bad news. They said, yeah, it, it really is a, a fruitful land. It really is a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, check out these grapes. These grapes are huge. But if you think these grapes are huge, wait till you see the people who eat them. They're giants in that land. He says, in fact, in fact we're just grasshoppers in their eyes. They're going to crush us like grapes. There's no way we can take these people. We're, we're, we're going to die before we even start. In fact, out of the 12 spies that got sent in, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who actually trusted God. And so they, they come back and they're like, well, yeah, there's giants in the land. Sure, they're big, but you know what? They're so big, there's no way we can miss them. We got them right where we wanted. Let's go. You know, and so they were ready to take them on. And so the picture here, by contrast, is that out of the two to possibly three million that, that, were, that, were, that, that were being led to the promised land, only two of them at the moment pleased God. So with most of them, God was not pleased. Why? Well, because most of them grumbled and complained the whole way. Most of them grumbled about how God provided. You know, I mean, you know, God provides manna and, 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 and they complain about that. God sets them free from their slavery. They complain about that. God provides water from a rock. They complain about that. It's like no matter what God did, no matter, no matter how God provided for them or, or, or how God worked in their lives, all they could do was grumble and complain. And over and over again, they keep saying, well, we'd be better off in Egypt as slaves. At least in Egypt, we, we, we had food. At least our slave masters gave us water. You led us out here to die. We, we, it would be better for us to go back to our slavery. So that's why Paul is using them as the illustration, so that we can learn from their past. So now on that note, we pick it up in verses 6 through 11, and now Paul gives some lessons from the past. Verse 6. He says, now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Uh, do not be idolaters or some of, as, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and, and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. You know, it's been said that, that, that if we don't learn from our past, we're, we're, we're condemned to repeat it, Right? And so we need to learn from our past. And so that's why Paul is bringing up the past of the nation of Israel so that we can learn or so that the Corinthians can learn from their mistakes. Now on that note, uh, let me point out that, that there's three things that the, three things that the Apostle Paul uh, wants to correct with this church. There's, there's three things, three problems that Paul is dealing with with the Corinthians. 
Let me give them to you now. Number one, the first thing that, that Paul is confronting was idolatry. Because evidently there was idolatry in the Corinthian church. Number two, the second thing that Paul is, is confronting is sexual immorality. Because there was sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. And then number three, the third thing that Paul was, was dealing with was that they were testing God. They were testing God. Now, the, the, there might be a fourth thing, but I kind of consider it to be like 3B, and that is that they were grumbling and complaining. But you know, every church does that. So anyway, uh, yeah, but these are the, 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 the three or four things that Paul wants to deal with, with, with the Corinthians. And, and so, you know, first thing on the list was idolatry. Now remember, back in chapter eight, we saw that the apostle Paul brings up the issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. He said, you know, there, there's some Christians in the Corinthian church that, that, that are free to eat the meat sacrificed to an idol with a clean conscience. They can do it and it doesn't bother them. But then again, there's others in, in, the, in the church. Maybe they're new believers. Maybe, maybe they're weaker in their faith. And if they follow that example and they try to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, it might trip them up. It, it might stumble them and cause them to go back to a life of idol worship. Because when you think about it, where do you have to go to get meat sacrificed to an idol? You go back to the pagan temple. It'd be like some of you going back to the party life. Some of you going back to the bar life. Some of you going back to, to, uh, to, to this person you used to be in an intimate relationship with. The scene of the crime. And so for them to go back to this, the, this pagan temple might be too much and it might trip them up back into a lifestyle of idol worship. So that's the first thing he wants to deal with. Number two, he wants to deal with sexual immorality in the church. Because you, you might remember, back in chapter 5, Paul dealt with the fact that there was incest in the Corinthian church. Because there was this young man sleeping with his dad's wife. But then, in chapter 6, then Paul deals with the fact that some of the Christians in Corinth were still going to the pagan temple and sleeping with the, with the temple prostitutes. So there, there was, there was uh, sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. And then number 3, Paul wants to deal with, with testing God. Why? Well, because evidently some of the Corinthians were testing God. Now, maybe they were testing God by grumbling and complaining. That's what the passage seems to imply. Now, some commentators think that, that, that perhaps they were testing God in the area of their finances, in the area of giving, in the area of tithing, which is why back in chapter 9, Paul had to talk to them about tithing, about giving, about giving freely, because evidently some of them were not giving freely. You know, some of them evidently uh, didn't, did not trust that God would provide for them, didn't trust that God would take care of their needs. And so instead of giving freely, instead of tithing, they were holding on to it, like, like with a clenched fist. You know, maybe the economy was tight. Maybe inflation was going up. You know, prices at the grocery store were getting harder and harder, and, 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 they, and they were getting worried. They, they were fearful. So they were holding on to it rather than giving freely. And then by doing so, perhaps they were testing God. And so Paul wants to confront these things. So now with that, the first thing he wants to confront is idolatry, which is why in verse seven, Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now this is referring to, to what happened in Exodus chapter 32. You go back to Exodus 32 and you read that, that, that Moses had been up uh, on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights and, and, and he was there receiving revelation from God. This is when he comes back with the, with the Ten Commandments. But he's up there 40 days and 40 nights and he's gone so long that the people start to get worried that, that Moses is never coming back. In fact, some of them convince themselves that maybe Moses is dead. So what they do is, is they now convince Aaron, Moses' brother, to be their new leader. 
Then they convince Aaron to make them a new god to worship. So Aaron, you know, he, 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 he collects all their, their, their golden earrings, melts them down, and, and, and makes them into a golden calf. Now, by the way, commentators point out that, that the fact that they still had golden earrings was actually an indicator that they were still involved in Egyptian idol worship. Keep in mind, they have been slaves for 400 years. Generation after generation, they've been in Egypt. And so many of them no longer worship the true and living God. Many of them are now worshiping the, the pagan gods, the idols of Egypt. And so the fact that they had these, these earrings was a sign that they were still involved in idolatry. How do we know that? Because in, in Egypt, earrings were not a fashion accessory. It wasn't just a little piece of jewelry that you wore. No, Egypt, in Egypt, the Egyptians would, would have these little earrings that they would make into the image of the God that they worshipped and then they wore it on their ear. It was a sign of ownership. Sometimes slaves would have a, would have a brand or a mark of, 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 the, of their slave owner on their ear and in the same way, they would wear these earrings saying they were owned by this God. It was a sign of idol worship. So the very fact that they had these earrings is indicating that they were still worshipping idols. And so this just shows in many ways that, that although they've, they, they've gotten out of Egypt, they never got the Egypt out of them. So now, you know, Aaron takes their, their golden earrings, he melts them down and makes them into a golden calf. Now, by the way, that golden calf is another Egyptian god. It's the Egyptian god called Apis. Apis was, 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 a, was a bull god, you know, like, like a bull in a china shop. And so this god in, 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 in the image of a bull, he was the, the god of strength, so now here they are, they're worshiping this, 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 this God of strength, this, this, this Egyptian God, and now that's when Moses comes back. Moses comes down the mountain, he sees all this nonsense going on, and he sees that Aaron's the one leading all the nonsense. So now Moses is outraged, he comes down the mountain, and he's like, you done messed up, Aaron? And he comes down the mountain, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and Aaron's like, well, Moses, it's not my fault. I mean, you know, it's the people. The people made me do it. And besides, all I did was take all those gold earrings and throw them in the fire and then presto, out popped this golden calf. It was like magic. You know, like, like, like he's Rocky and Bullwinkle, right? You know, just, hey, Rocky, want to see me pull a rabbit out of my hat? Nothing up a sleeve, presto. You know, like it was just magic. Go, go back to Exodus 32. That's exactly what they say. He, just, he threw it in the fire and out popped this, this golden calf. And so on that note, it then says, that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play is not a word that means that they were playing like patty cake, patty cake, beggar's man. No, the word play there actually comes from a Hebrew figure of speech that literally means they were having an orgy. Because keep in mind, part of pagan worship involved temple prostitutes. Now that leads us to the next thing that Paul wants to confront and that's sexual sin, sexual morality, which is why he says in verse eight, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now this, he's referring to, to Numbers chapter 25. Now Numbers chapter 25, we, we read at this time that the King Balak, the king of the Moabites, hires a, a false prophet, a prophet for hire by the name of Balaam. Now as I said, Balaam was a false prophet. But he hires Balaam to put a curse on the children of Israel, on the people of God. But Balaam turns and says, listen, I can't curse those people. Why? Well, because their God is actually a God. He's actually real. He's the living God. And he's actually powerful. He's too powerful. There's nothing I can do. I can't curse these people. But what we can do is get, is get them to curse themselves. 
Now in the Jewish Talmud, there's an interesting little side note about the, the story of Balaam. Because in the Jewish Talmud, it says that, 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 that Balaam, the false prophet, tells Balak, the king, he says, he says, listen, the one thing that the God of these people really, really hates is sexual sin. So now, I can't put a curse on them, but what we can do is you can send the prostitutes of Moab down to the men and entice them into sexual sin. And if they fall for it, then, then God will, will, will destroy his own people. And so, although I can't curse the people, we can get them to curse themselves. And that's exactly what happens. They send the, the prostitutes of Moab down to the men, and the men fall for it, and then it says that 23,000 all died in a single day. So what Paul's saying is, is, listen, we need to learn from their mistakes. We need to learn from their past. Some of them were idolaters. Don't fall for it yourself. Learn from their failures. Some of them uh, were involved in sexual immorality. Don't fall for it. Learn from their failures. And now he says in verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And I think that these two kind of go together. Now, first of all, he says, you should not put Christ to the test. You should not put God to the test. Now, if you go back to Numbers 21, Numbers 21, how were they putting God to the test? Well, we see that over and over again, as the children of Israel kept traveling and wandering through the desert, what did they do? They kept grumbling and complaining. Over and over again, they grumbled and complained. And they kept saying things like, you know what? You brought us out here to die. You brought us to the desert so we'd starve to death, so we'd die of thirst. We'd be better off in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we'd have food. Bring us back to Egypt. Bring us back to our slavery. So they kept grumbling and they kept complaining. And finally, God had it up to here with all their complaining and he sends a bunch of poisonous snakes. The snakes start biting the people. People are dying left and right. And then God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and then lift it high on a pole, and that whoever looks with their eyes at that bronze serpent, they will be saved. They won't die. And so in a sense, what that's telling us is that the way that people were saved back in Moses' day was by faith. That all they had to do was look at this bronze serpent. Just by looking at it, if they trusted, then they, then they would be saved. Now on that note, it's interesting, Jesus later on uses that same word picture to talk about himself. He says in John chapter 3, verse 14. John 3, 14, Jesus says, as Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so in effect, what it's saying is, is that just as the children of Israel looked at that serpent that was lifted up on that pole, and, and, and if they looked by faith, then they were saved from death in the same way. When you look at Jesus who's lifted up on the cross and you look by faith, then you will be saved from your sins. You'll be saved from hell. And so that's why it says in verse 9 that we must not put Christ to the test. Why? Because that bronze serpent that Moses made, it was a foreshadow. It was a symbol. It was a type representing Jesus on the cross. And we put him to the test when we don't trust him. And in their case, they didn't trust that he would provide. They were being led through this wilderness and they were being led from slavery into the promised land, but they didn't trust that he'd provide. They kept grumbling and they kept complaining over and over again. And they kept saying, bring us back to Egypt. This is why Paul's using them as an example so that we can learn from them. On that note, now in verses 12 through 13, Paul now gives a lesson to heed. He says in verse 12, 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So again, he keeps using the children of Israel as the example. And we know that he's using them as an example because he said so. He said in verse 6 and also in verse 11, he says, these things happen to them as examples for us so that we can learn from it. So we have to go and do the same stupid stuff ourselves. We've got enough of our own stupid stuff to account for. And, and so he says, you know, it's an example. Then on that note, he says, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, it's, it's when you think that it'll never happen to me that it's about to happen to you. It, it's, it's when you think that, that you're too spiritual, you're too grounded in God's word, you, you know, you, you, you're, 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 you're too holy to ever give in to temptation, you're, you're, you're too strong to ever fall for sin. Listen, it's when you think that, that you're about to fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And when you think about it, when does temptation come? Temptation typically comes when you least expect it, right? It doesn't come when you're ready for it, when you've got yourself braced. It doesn't come when your guard's up. It doesn't come when you're at your strongest moment. It comes when you least expect it. In fact, it's interesting. History tells us that, that that's, uh, during World War II, that's, that's the strategy that Hitler used as he was invading other nations. Typically, as he had invaded another nation, he would typically attack on the weekends. Why? Because he knew that on the weekends, various parliaments were not in session, and so it would make it harder for them to quickly respond to his invasion. So he always waited for the weekend. He waited for when they were on break, when their guard was down. In the same way, it's when our guard's down. And it's, it's when we think we're the strongest, when we think it'll never happen to us, that's when we find out just how weak we really are. So he, he tells us, take heed lest you fall. Keep your guard up. Learn from their mistakes. And now verse 14, finally, he, he tells us how to handle a sinful past. Verse 14, he simply says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We'll break that verse down in just a moment, but keep in mind, again, he, he, he's using the children of Israel as, as this example. And so Paul is, is trying to give the, the, the Corinthians who were who struggling with, with going back to, to their old lifestyle, their old sins, their old behaviors. He's now giving them four lessons from the children of Israel on how to handle their sinful past. Four lessons on how to handle their sinful past. Let me give those to you now. Lesson number one on how to handle your sinful past is to, is to realize that sin is common to man what he said back in verse 13. He says, no temptation has come upon you that is not common to man. So what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is this. He's saying, you know what? If it could happen to them, the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, if it could happen to them, then certainly it can happen to you. You're not any better than they are. He says, it is common to man. Now listen, the, the thing that, that, that put the city of Corinth on the map in the first place was that in many ways it was like the sin capital of the world. They were famous, world famous for sin. They, they were world famous for drunkenness, and they were also world famous for sexual immorality. I've shared this before, but the highest hill in the, in the city of Corinth was called the Acro Corinth, and on top of that hill was the world famous temple of Aphrodite. Now, the temple of Aphrodite housed literally 1,000 temple prostitutes. 
On one occasion, there was as many as 10,000 temple prostitutes. Now, these prostitutes, they would come down at night and, and they would solicit themselves to the sailors and to the tourists that were there as a way to raise money for the temple because evidently they haven't discovered the thing called bake sale yet. And so because of this, they were literally world famous for prostitution. Not only that, but they were also world famous for drinking. In fact, archaeologists have, have done these digs there and they have uncovered countless bars and countless taverns littered all throughout the city of Corinth. World famous for, 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 for prostitution and for drinking. They were literally the sin capital of the ancient world. And so the Apostle Paul is, is telling these, these Christians who are now living in the sin capital of the world, he's saying, listen, no temptation has come upon you that is not common to man. What he's saying is this. He's saying, you know what? All of us were, were born in the same condition. We were all born S-I-N positive. Sin positive. Every one of us. Listen, there, there, there's no such thing as, 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 as a believer who's immune to temptation. There's not one of us who, 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 who is immune to, to, to giving in to sin. Every single one of us. None of us is sin-proof. And so he tells us, he reminds us that, that sin is common. Temptation is common. Therefore, keep your guard up. Don't let your guard down. That's lesson number one. But then lesson number two on how to handle your sinful past is, that, is this. God will not give you more than you can handle. God will not give you more than you can. That's what he goes on to say in verse 13, right? He says, God is faithful. Whoever, uh, who, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He'll not give you more than your ability. Now, the problem is that, unfortunately, that's where most of us stop reading the verse. You know, right there we go, oh, there you have it. God said he won't give me more than I can handle. And of course, you know, a lot of us are familiar with that old quote from Mother Teresa years ago when she said, I know that, that God won't give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. You know, and so chances are all of us have had those times in life where the bottom has dropped out. You've had those times where, you know, maybe, maybe you're battling a painful disease. Maybe, maybe you have a spouse that's walked out on you. Maybe, maybe you're being sued by creditors. Maybe you've got a, a adult children that have, that have turned their backs on you and turned to a life of whatever. Or you've got this that's happening and that that's happening. And, and, and it's almost always in a, in a crisis like that that some well-meaning, good-intentioned brother in Christ comes up and says something like, Hey, brother, just remember, God won't give you more than you can handle. You're like, come here, I'll give you something to handle. Now listen, you have to understand that, that in the context of chapter 10, the context here, this, this is not a promise from God saying that he will not give you more hardships than you can handle. This is not a promise from God saying that he will not give you more trials than you're able to handle. No, the context here, this is a promise from God that he will not allow you to face more temptation than you can handle. More temptation than you can handle. So if you're being tempted, you can handle it. But make sure you read the rest of the verse. Because the verse goes on to say, but with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So how can you handle it? How can you bear it? Answer, he provides a way out. He provides a way of escape. You see, what these Corinthian Christians living in the sin capital of the world needed to hear. I mean, these, these, these Christians living in the city were, were literally every temptation you could imagine. I mean, every form of perversion you can think of. I mean, every kind of sin that you can think of was, was right there on, on full display 24-7. 
And not only was it on full display, I mean, it was, it was available anytime you wanted it, as much of it as you wanted. And what they needed to know, they needed to know as they lived in the sin capital world, they needed to know there was a way out. There was a way of escape. Now, what's the way out? What's the way of escape from your temptation? Well, that leads us to lesson number three on how to handle your sinful past. And that lesson is to simply run away. Run away. That's what he says in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Doesn't say stand there and stare at it. Doesn't say try to take it on. Doesn't say, you know, I get in a Mexican showdown with it. It says flee. Run from idolatry. Now, the word flee it comes from the Greek word fuego. Uh, we get the word fugitive from it. And really, this is a word that was used to speak of, of fugitive uh, slaves, runaway slaves. They were fugitives. And so it's the idea that, 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 that you're always on the run from the very thing that wants to enslave you. You're always on the run from the thing that wants to enslave you. Now, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about how, how the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And then he says in 1, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he says, flee these things. Flee these things. Later on, 1 Corinthians chapter, eight, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, flee sexual sin. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, 2 Timothy 2, 22, he says, flee youthful lust. That's so whether it's a youthful lust, a sexual sin, the love of money, or, or idolatry. It's the same thing over and over again. Flee. Run. In fact, that's the very thing that, that motivated Augustine. Some of you might pronounce it Augustine, but I like to say things wrong. Um, so it's Augustine. It's the very thing that helped Augustine uh, stay pure and, and, and try to live a godly life. Now, it's, it's widely known that, that before Augustine got saved and became a Christian, he, 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 he spent a lot of time and a lot of money on prostitutes, if you know what I mean. But then he got saved. He became a follower of Christ. Now, one day, as, as, a, as a new Christian, he's walking down the street, and, and then all of a sudden, he sees this prostitute he used to spend a lot of time with, and she recognizes him. And she calls out, and she's like, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. That's my prostitute impersonation. <laughs> Pretty good, right? And, you know, and, and he sees her, and, and he turns 180 degrees the opposite direction and runs away as fast as he can, screaming the whole time, saying, it is not I. It is not I. You see, that's the life of the Christian life. Always on the run. In fact, when it says flee, whether it says flee youthful lust, flee sexual sin, flee these things, or flee idolatry, every time it's used, it's always used in what's called the Greek present imperative tense which means two things. Number one, it means that it was a command. It's not a suggestion. It's as if your commander-in-chief is ordering you to run. There's no other option. You have no other choice. You're being commanded to run. That's number one. The second thing that the Greek present imperative means is that it's ongoing. It's not one and done. In, in other words, it, 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 as a Christian, it's not just enough to, to run from sin one time in your life. But rather, as a Christian, you're going to spend the rest of your life like a fugitive, always on the run from the very thing that wants to enslave you. A fugitive from sin. Flee temptation. And so how do we handle a sinful past? Number one, we remember that, that, that sin is common to man. And because it's common, 
because we were born with a, with a sin nature, we need to keep our guard up. Number two, we, 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 we handle our sinful past by, by, by remembering that, that God won't give us more than we can handle. He gives us a way out. And number three, that way out is to run, to flee. Now that leads us to the fourth lesson on how to handle a sinful past, and that is to simply break the pattern. Break the pattern, break the cycle. Listen, the, the children of Israel, if you think about it, they were enslaved for 400 years. Generation after generation, 400 years they were in bondage. And, and now suddenly, a new generation under the leadership of Moses, they've been set free. But the problem is they will now want to repeat the pattern, repeat the cycle of the previous generation. I mean, their parents were slaves, their grandparents were slaves. Their ancestors were slaves, and now they're wanting to repeat the pattern and go back into slavery. In the same way, when you think about it, some of you, you know, maybe, maybe you were raised in, in, in homes of abuse. Maybe you were raised in, in homes of addiction and, and violence and, and just all kinds of dysfunction. And maybe you always vowed that, that, that it would be different with you. That, you know, that, that, you know maybe now you've got a family of your own, and, and, and you know what, you're, you're going to do it differently. You're not going to repeat their failures. But now here you are, and you're starting to find that you're repeating the same pattern and the same cycle. There's a song that we sing, and a line in it says, Chain Breaker. That if you've got chains, he's a chain breaker. And listen, he is. He is a chain, chain breaker. He broke my chains. A lot of you know my story. You should, because I, sh- I shared it last week. Um, but, you know, I might share it every week, so what makes this week any different? But you know, part of my story is, is, like some of you, I grew up in a very, very dysfunctional environment, a broken environment. I mean, when I was four years old, I was molested by the teenage son of one of my babysitters. And also, when I was four years old, I was knifed by two teenagers who had just robbed a gas station, and, and, and they thought I witnessed it, so they pull out a switchblade. This was in the 70s, don't worry. Uh, and, 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 they, and they cut me. And so I have a scar from here to here. I, I grew up in a home with, with my mom and, and her multiple live-in boyfriends, a, a home of, of, of drugs and, and, and alcohol. In fact, many of them were not just drug addicts, but drug dealers, and they had some very, very dangerous connections. A home of violence and, and, and just all-out craziness. And as a result, I was bounced in and out of 20 different foster homes. And growing up in the foster care system, I would have social worker after social worker and therapist after therapist and this isn't a slam against them. In fact, in many ways, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up to be a social worker because I thought they were the ones helping everybody. But I had social worker after social worker tell me that because I was abused as a child, more than likely, I'm going to repeat that cycle. I'm going to repeat that pattern myself and become an abuser. I'd have therapist after therapist tell me that, that because my, my mom was a drug addict and because her boyfriends were addicts and because they were alcoholics, that more than likely, I'm going to repeat that cycle myself and become an addict and become a, a, a user and an abuser. And then there's my dad. Uh, my dad, when I was 10 years old, had committed suicide. And, and it really rocked my world at that time. But then I discovered that, that, that it's interesting because it's almost as if there was a cycle, almost as if there was a pattern of suicide in, in my dad's family. Because not only did he commit suicide, but so did his father before him. And I was on my way to that. As a, as a 15-year-old, I had gotten to the point that I was hopeless, suicidal, and I was a runaway. Now, now here's that part of the story. At that part of the story, I, I, at 15, I just got out of a foster home that I'd been in for two or three years, come home to live with my mom, and then all the craziness happens again. You know, things are flying around the house, punches and, and kicks and, and just yelling and, and bullets, literally bullets and knives. I mean, just things are just going nuts. And, and, and one night, uh, my mom wakes me up at two in the morning. She says, my gun's missing. 
She says, my gun's missing and you took it. You took my gun and you planned to kill me. And then she goes back to bed. And at that point, I thought, this chick is nuts. I mean, you know, even if what she was saying was true, which it was not, by the way, but even if it was true, I thought to myself, how smart is it to tell the guy you're on to his plan and then go back to bed so he can carry out your plan? I thought, she's nuts. And so I grabbed all my stuff, threw it in a trash bag, and I ran away from home. And, and after about two weeks of, of being a runaway, I got to the point where I, I, I was desperate. And like a lot of desperate people, I, I, I cried out to God. And I said, God, you know what? I don't even know if you're real. I don't know if you exist. I mean, for all I know, you're, you're, you're like Santa Claus, something that people just believe in to feel better about themselves. But all I know is that if, if you're not real or if you don't help me, I'm dead. And quite frankly, I'd rather be dead than to go on living like this. Cried myself to sleep, got up the next morning, went to school, came back after school. I was hanging out in the, in the parking lot of, of the apartment complex I lived, hanging out with my friends. And all of a sudden, I see my uncle walking around. I thought, oh, crap. Now, can you say crap from the pulpit? Well, I just did. Uh, and, and I thought, you know, uh, I thought, you know my uncle showed up on the scene, and, and he, he's going to find me. He's going to force me to go back home to my mom. So I take off. I'm booking it. This is, I, I'm booking down Washington Street, 120th and Washington. I'm just running as fast as I can, which wasn't very fast. He pulls up side of me, and he's like, he's, like, he's like, hop in. He takes me to Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then he says, you know what? Your aunt and I have been praying, and we want to invite you to live with us on the condition that you go to church. And I was like, well, how did you know to come get me? Did, did my mom call you and tell you that I ran away? And he said, no. He says, last night we were praying and God told us to come get you. The night that God told him to come get me was the same night that I was crying out to God. So I, I, I come and I start living there and I start going to church. And, and every week, Sunday after Sunday, it's like the preacher was talking about me. Like I was the only one in the room. And finally, after a couple of months of this, I, 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 on a midweek service, I end up giving my life to Christ. I, 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 I become a Christian. Now, it wasn't changes instantly. Not everything changed right then and there. But you know what, what, what did happen? The moment I gave my life to Christ, the chains of my past were broken. The, 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 the cycle, the, the pattern, the, the, the cycle of suicide, the cycle of addiction, the cycle, cycle of hopelessness, the cycle of violence, all of that was broken. Those chains were broken. Listen, he's a chain breaker. Isaiah 9, 4, it says, it says for God will break the chains that bind his people. Listen, I'm here to tell you that the same God who broke the chains of slavery for the, for the children of Israel was the same God who broke the chains of my past. And you know what else? He's the same God that wants to break the chains that are enslaving you. But listen to this. Once he set you free, stay free. Learn from the past. Don't repeat it. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.